Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Alistair Campbell, a longtime senior executive in Canada's insurance industry, a former senior advisor to Ontario Premier Mike Harris, and the editor of a new essay collection about the Premier's legacy entitled The Harris Legacy, Reflections on a Transformational Premier. The essays, which cover Harris's policy record on several files, from education to democratic reform and virtually everything in between, is the first major attempt to reckon with his legacy from something of a sympathetic disposition. It serves, therefore, as a useful correction to longstanding narratives advanced by the Premier's many critics. I'm grateful to speak with Alistair about the book, including why he decided to do it, what he learned, and the lessons from Premier Harris's transformational time in office. In the name of transparency, I should say that I co-authored one of the essays in the book on the Harris government's welfare reforms. With that, Alistair, thank you for joining us on Hub Dialogues. And congratulations on the book. Thanks, Sean, and thanks for having me. It was one of those side of the desk COVID projects that's turned into something rather bigger. Indeed. And it feels nice to, to see it actually come into life. As you observe in your introduction to the book, even though it's been nearly 30 years since Mike Harris was first elected, he still looms quite large over Ontario politics, including, as you write, quote, galvanizes strong opinion on all sides. Why do you think that's the case? Why has he remained so salient when so many other former politicians have disappeared into obscurity? Well, I think it'd be fair to say, Sean, that Mike is a bit of an outlier uh, in the the way Canadian politics is uh, traditionally seen to work. It's kind of a a brokered uh, and rather glacial uh, process of change. Uh, Mike was a leader of a third place party uh, in the wilderness in uh, Ontario under a socialist government, Bob Ray. Uh, and he published a platform that was seen by most people to be beyond the pale, on the fringe, too extreme. Uh, he printed two and a half million copies of something he branded the Common Sense Revolution. And he went into an election in 1995, 30 points behind. And in six weeks, swept to a landslide majority victory. So even that's already pretty unusual, but what was profoundly different about Harris is he then actually did what he said in the platform. Uh, And so the scope and scale, the depth of the ideas in that platform represented a really substantial substantive change in the biggest province in Canada and how it was going to operate. And it was, by most measures, uh, successful. 
just to finish the, the timeline for those less familiar, because they're too young to remember all of this old history, in 1999, there had been uh, a sequence of general strikes and uh, massive uh, uh, teacher strikes and walkouts. And so the 99 election served as kind of like a referendum on how Ontario felt about this radical uh, departure from the norm. And public sector unions outspent the combined advertising of the three parties two to one. None of it was in favor of, of Harris. <laughs> and he won an increased plurality in his second campaign. Uh, and so I think the idea that he represents something really quite memorable just because he actually did stuff is probably a large part of what sticks in people's memories. We'll come back to the common sense revolution and the level of ambition reflected in uh, Premier Harris's agenda. But before we get there, I want to ask a bit about the origins of the, of the book itself. For a long time after Harris left office, it felt like the story of his ideas and record was told primarily by his critics. Him and the people around him mostly chose to permit oppositional narratives to form uncontested. Why do you think that was? And how much of the inspiration for the book was motivated by the goal of pushing back or challenging the one-sided and unfair criticism that the former premier and his government have faced? So I'll answer the specific part of that first and then maybe work backwards. I think the initial trigger in my mind for this uh, book project was the announcement of uh, Harris's appointment to the Order of Ontario by Premier Ford. And there was kind of a spasm media coverage. And most of it was, you know, the normal, you know, Toronto Star uh, haters, uh, some of them still alive and definitely still hating. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what struck me, uh, Sean, was at the time was that there were a number of younger reporters that kind of got told by their editors to fill some column inches on this issue. And they did what good young reporters would do. They went to Wikipedia and Google. And what they got was Imperwash and Walkerton and tragic levels of austerity so awful that they left thousands of nurses and teachers starving homeless in the streets of Ontario. And I remember the history different myself, uh, but maybe I'm old and just don't remember properly. And I realized that, you know, it used to be that history was written by the victors. But now it seems that history is written by the people who just take the time to write the history. Or maybe the other guys are the victors. So it uh, kind of fell upon me to lead the project of kind of filing a minority report to uh, begin a process of maybe some balance a revisionist history perspective, if you will, that would get to a better appreciation of the actual consequences of this premiere, as opposed to uh, the memes of the time that have been used to effectively, you know, almost cancel his memory. I want to take up the common sense revolution, because as you say, it was such an extraordinary document that came to influence and shape the government's agenda after 1995. You and others were, of course, involved in the production of that platform. And as you outline in a chapter in the book, the CSR was part of a broader wave of conservative policymaking across the Anglo-American world that was confident, ambitious, and fundamentally about ideas. It was a time when, as Daniel Patrick Monaghan put it, conservatives were actually winning the battle of ideas. Bring us back to that era, Alistair, and situate Harris's ideological foundations and the CSR's place in the broader milieu, including Newt Gingrich's contract with America and the conservative intellectual ascendancy. 
So I think there's so much cross-pollination of ideas taking place. And the Western developed world had kind of got to this kind of stagflationary inertial state. Uh, Economic growth had deteriorated. Unemployment rates had become chronically high. And so there was a general dissatisfaction among voters about the way government was producing. And the uh, normal course of flow meant more government spending, more government programs, which led to higher and higher deficits and debt at a point where it didn't seem like it was yielding any benefits. And so there was a, a tremendous rise of new ideas from the conservative end of the spectrum. But I would say it wasn't just conservatism. It was actually, you know, Al Gore was talking about reinventing government. That was a big theme in what we tried to achieve in the common sense revolution. In New Zealand, they were restructuring their entire public sector to try and have it perform uh, with the same level of concentration on service effectiveness as was happening in the private sector. And so there was influence there. There were clearly two landmark figures that had an influence, Reagan with his orientation towards lower taxes and Margaret Thatcher with their orientation towards freedom uh, and less government, including privatization. So all of those factors were kicking in here. But don't forget, one of the elements of welfare reform that was most controversial at the time was being implemented by Bill Clinton in this era. And so the idea that these were problems that needed to be tackled and that there were conservative ideas about how to tackle them. Uh, in fact, plenty of it is what made the common sense revolution maybe easier to write than a similar platform would be today. Uh, there were plenty of options and ideas and the conservative movement was filled with policy dialogue and policy think tanks and there was lots to draw from. In his foreword to the book, David Frum makes the case that Harris combined what he describes as old values and new ideas. He was a small town guy with a metropolitan agenda. That is to say, he was a conservative, but he wasn't a nostalgist. It reminds me of Reagan's famous line, quote, I want to go back to the past way of thinking about the future. Alistair, talk about this interesting mix of old and new that David writes about and how it influenced the government's policy agenda. So I think David beautifully articulates the idea that sometimes Canadians can work out how to capture both goodness of one side and the goodness of another. And our genius for this leads to brands like progressive conservative, for instance, or in our case, common sense revolution. Yes, We were definitely bringing a change agenda to Canada back in the 90s. And that was potentially radical and potentially threatening to citizens of a country that are used to rather more stable status quo thinking. The balance was uh, really in the soul of this guy, Harris, uh, who was fundamentally a common sense individual who radiated this sense of, you know, this would be somebody you'd be happy to know in your neighborhood, have a beer with and hang out watching your kids' hockey games with. Uh, He had sat in the back benches of Queen's Park watching the Bill Davis era from a front row seat, if you will. He'd studied exactly what the issues of Ontario were. And he came from an ethos of balanced Canadian Ontario at the center of a strong economic Canada. He came from all of that. But he knew that bigger change was required than normal. 
And so he took this whole new policy agenda and attached it to a core element of Canadianness, if you will, which absolutely resonated in Ontario and led to his two landslide victories. My experience in politics is that some politicians are driven by ideas and others are driven by instinct. Some are hands-on in the policy process and others are more removed. Where would you situate Harris amongst those different approaches? How much did he personally shape the direction and focus of the common sense revolution? I'll just start by, you know how some people at the poker table like to be underestimated by the other guys at the poker table? (laughs) Yes. Harris, uh, almost uniquely from my experience, was totally cool if other people underestimated him. Same with Reagan, of course. Exactly. It, It gave him a competitive advantage. If they wanted to think he was a dumb golf pro from North Bay, he thought that was actually great news because he would be able to sneak up and surprise and outperform. Uh, And he did. So in the context of your specific question, suffice it to say that Harris was way more involved in the policy formulation and authoring of this document than anybody knows. Uh, I think his fingerprints were on all of it. There was no public policy issue in Ontario that he didn't understand front to back and have a deep grasp of the kind of stakeholder map. But added to that was a pretty clear and firm sense that he had He had an idea of what he would do if he was ever in charge. And then he got to be in charge. And he implemented a policy platform that he had had direct engagement in crafting with his caucus. And at the time, Sean, you uh, might be amazed by this now, but our party had grassroots party policy councils uh, who were uh, spitting out their own uh, policy ideas, 13 of them. Uh, as I recall. And I got to read all of that stuff as part of the process of crafting the actual final document. But every draft of that uh, went past uh, Harris. uh, And when the platform was released, it was his. I'm a generation removed from the common sense revolution. But in the conservative pantheon, there has always been an allure around the young, dynamic people that Harris pulled into politics and that were involved in uh, the development of the platform. And then, of course, in in some cases, staffing the new government. I think, of course, of you and Leslie Noble and Tony Clement and you know dozens of others who I don't have time to mention. As young, idealistic, ideologically rooted conservatives, What drew you to Mike Harris? What was the secret sauce that brought all of these dynamic, as I say, serious, intellectually rooted conservatives together at this precise moment? Well, probably some luck and uh, maybe a little (laughs) bit of judgment. Uh, But if you think about uh, the political timing, uh, our, our party had been in power for 42 consecutive years. And then it had this spectacular fall from grace. And we had been in the wilderness uh, in what we uh, branded as uh, Ontario's lost decade, the 10 years of Peterson and Ray. But we were a bankrupt party in third place. Uh, There was a period of 18 months where we ran with an interim leader because we couldn't afford to hold a leadership convention and nobody wanted the job. Uh, So it was also a time when there was another place for conservative talent to go, Ottawa where Brian Mulroney's conservatives had successfully achieved power 
And then we're actually doing some meaningful things themselves, including uh, the free trade agreement and uh, the GST. So there was an alternate place for the talent to go and a vacuum in Ontario. So uh, I would say under normal circumstances, kids of our age and our generation would not have had a chance to get their fingers on the steering wheel, except that kind of political forces and, and luck kind of created a dynamic where we could. There were a group of us who had been engaged in this policy debate within the Ontario party. And suddenly the steering wheel was available to us. And there was a leader that was able to get past all of the internecine stuff. You know, the Tory party can do a great job of attacking itself instead of the other guys. And there was lots of that going on internally. Harris was able to build all of the team drawing from the right of the party, the left of the party, the people who've been involved with that leadership contest and that other leadership contest and bring everybody together. It was a very special and underestimated talent that he had. One of the interesting choices that Harris as party leader and you and the others around him made was to release the CSR well in advance of the 1995 election. It was a decision that runs counter to conventional wisdom about what opposition parties ought to be doing in terms of the relative balance of prosecuting the case against the incumbent government and putting forward their alternative agenda. Talk a bit about that decision and why you thought it was so important. Ontario, in the market research we were doing, was signaling this tremendous appetite for change. Uh, the status quo was not working for Ontario. The recession of kind of 89, 90 through to 93 was a, a transformational experience for Ontario. Historically, we'd been dragged into recession, kicking and screaming, went in last of all the provinces and came out first, dragging Canada back to growth and prosperity. We went in headlong first into this recession and came out last behind Newfoundland with 1.3 million people, welfare caseloads, in a province that wasn't yet 11 million people. And so the appetite for change was there. And we'd also seen in the federal election in 93, where the you know, founding political party of Canada was erased from the political map of Canada, uh, the progressive conservatives fell from government to just two seats and uh, lost every seat in Ontario. Part of that was Mr. Kretschmann waving a red book uh, and saying he had a plan. And so it seemed clear that there was an appetite for change. There was an appetite for a plan, and people were looking for a leader with a plan. What we did that was unusual was Kretschmann only waved his book and counted on nobody to read it because it was 100% content-free. We produced a very robust, idea-filled change agenda because we were convinced that from third place, to prove that you really meant real change, we needed to kind of nail ourselves to the mast and sail straight to the wind and, and make it clear we really believed in things. And so that, sorry, long answer to your question. The third part of this was the degree to which people had become very skeptical about the political process and believed that everybody was fitting. And so part of this was to put out a platform that was robust and controversial and when it was criticized, reiterate our commitment and prove through the contest that we really meant it. 
and that you could actually believe Mike when he promised to cut your taxes. You mentioned earlier that two and a half million copies were distributed. It is now, nearly 30 years later, hard to get your hands on a copy of the Common Sense Revolution. But through this project, you've made it widely available. Do you want to just talk a, a bit about that uh, for a oh, second? For sure, Sean. In the course of the, the project, trying to provide research support uh, to the authors like you uh, who were writing chapters in this book, it became very clear that we had been the last pre-digital era campaign. And so thanks to some generous benefactors, we were able to raise enough dough to build a website, theharrislegacy.ca. Uh, I'd encourage folks to visit. Uh, obviously, at the start of the project, the objective is obviously just to promote the book and sell copies of the book and all that good stuff. But over time, we're hoping it will become a digital premierial library. Uh, if you go there now, you can see the original campaign ads. You can see the uh, and hear the original painful jingle. Uh, you can watch the <laughs> day in the life of the campaign video we shot of ourselves in 95. Uh, extraordinary. But you can also uh, go through editions one through seven of the Common Sense Revolution and the final version in all 12 languages we produced it in. And over time, I hope that this kind of digital archive will, when a high school student looks up Mike Harris two years from now on ChatGPT, uh, I want them to have full access to the actual facts of the historical record uh, in digital form. And so kind of the second round of the writing of history, the stuff that's digitally accessible and video accessible, I think to the next generation will be uh, the winners. And that's a core part of the strategy for this. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. Yeah, well, let me just say, I was on the site last night in preparation for our conversation, and it's extraordinary. You and the others involved in the project deserve so much credit, and I'd strongly encourage listeners to check it out. Even Harris critics, I think, will come away with a a richer and more nuanced understanding of the era, even if it doesn't ultimately change their mind. The most striking thing in reading the book, Alistair, is the government's level of ambition and its risk tolerance. Talk about the latter. Where did it come from? How much of it was contextual? There were a lot of problems, as you discussed earlier. And how much of it was about Harris's own personality, including something I didn't know until I read the book, that he faced a serious health crisis in his mid-30s? So before we get to the personal part about Mike, every single nominated candidate was nominated after the publication of the Common Sense Revolution platform. Every candidate had to take a training course on the platform. Every candidate had to pass an exam about the platform. I, I marked those. I failed people. They had to retake the exam. So it wasn't just Harris with some convictions on the list of policy ideas. 
Our caucus were elected to this list of promises. And so it was much easier to execute against that uh, checklist because everybody believed in the agenda. And they had signed onto it themselves, including the, uh, the taxpayer's pledge. And so it was easier to execute on the change agenda because everybody in caucus and cabinet was on the same page. But with regard to Mike, one of the tremendously powerful elements of his personal uh, makeup was his willingness to take the hits. And he would always just say, well, if people don't like what we're doing, they can vote us out at the next election. And I have met lots of politicians in my life. And the number who are willing to bet uh, that people will reward them for doing the right thing and risk being thrown out at the next election, it's a shorter list. Harris had that conviction. It gave him the internal compass that allowed him to kind of plow through obstacles. Uh, and he was vindicated. The election in 99 was a referendum on the CSR, and, and he won big. And I think the idea that there was someone who did what he said he would do uh, was at the core and a tremendously attractive political asset. And it's exactly what voters want. Tell me the truth. Uh, do what is right. And I might not like all of the change, but I will reward people who stick to their guns and do what they think is right. The book is, of course, about the premier himself. But on your point about the cabinet and caucus, talk about us some of the unsung heroes that were crucial players in the development and ultimate execution of his agenda. Who are the the names that those younger listeners ought to know about and, and may not hear about in kind of con the conventional story of the Harris era? Well, I just flagged a handful of ministers who went on to be uh, part of the big change in Ottawa. So Jim Flaherty, John Baird, Tony Clement. I do not believe that the Harper government would have been nearly as effective as it was if it hadn't been for the fact that three of the most senior cabinet ministers had been blooded in the common sense revolutionary wars and had learned how to get change done through a big bureaucracy. So I would flag those three, but there were other really fantastically effective members of the cabinet team, including Janet Ecker would be another name that I think people should appreciate. And then, you know, internally, lots of people look at the campaign team leadership, of course, Tom Long and Leslie Noble, and they deserve so much credit. Uh, but the other person I would give tremendous credit to would be David Lindsay. Uh, David was Mike's chief of staff uh, in the campaign structure that Mike set up. Tom and Leslie we're in a triumvirate with David, and the three of them navigated masterfully uh, through the campaign and the transition into government. And out of our little team came folks that supported Mike all the way through to the end, Deb Hutton, Guy Giorno, who writes a magisterial chapter in this book on democratic reform. So a victory like this uh, has lots of folks attached to it. I could list names for a long time. Yes. In the end, you know, you do attach the legacy to the leader. But maybe, Sean, if I could just kind of boil down the book for those who are thinking, golly, policy book, do I really want to pay attention? <laughs> the key find chapter after chapter is that despite all the controversies of the time, 
almost nothing Harris did was reversed. And that's what makes him transformational. The city of Toronto was not unmerged. The monolith of Ontario Hydro that he broke up was not reconstituted. The nuclear plants we privatized weren't renationalized. The Oak Ridge's Moraine is still unpaved. We stopped burning coal for power generation. 12% of Ontario's land surface that was designated as parkland, still park. Nobody put welfare rates back up to the, what's the polite term for it, two high levels of Peterson and Ray. Nobody decided to give educating negotiation with the powerful uh, teachers unions back to 78 amateur boards of education. It stayed at the center, which is where the grade three, grade six, grade nine standardized tests are conducted with published results by schools so parents can see uh, what's going on in their schools. The list goes on. The Harris legacy isn't just this idea of a six and a half year blip of political activity. It's uh, decades of change in the way Ontario works, most of which is still the way Ontario works. And so the conclusion is really that on a short list of you know, transformational political figures in Canada, uh, Mike's actually one of those. And uh, in one of the chapters by a liberal, David Hurley, who ran Kathleen Wynne's last campaign, he finishes by lamenting that one of the consequences of Harris is that it's almost impossible to raise taxes in Canada now. And he says it as if it's a terrible thing. <laughs> I regard it as just another in the long list of wonderful things that uh, Harris left as his legacy, that not just in Ontario, it's hard to do, period. And that's meaningful, that's lasting, and that's why this book needed to be written. Well, let me take up that point precisely. After having worked on the book for a couple of years with, as you say, a diverse set of, of contributors, different backgrounds, different interests, etc., what in hindsight were, in your view, his most significant reforms? What ones still look good or perhaps even better with the passage of time? I think I'll give you an example would be on healthcare. And the chapter there is written by brilliant healthcare public policy expert, Will Folk chronic liberal, who ends up uh, giving uh, Harris uh, an A- in his full review of the healthcare reforms of the era. And if you remember the time, the nurses in angst, the hospital closures, you often wondered at the time, were we doing the right thing? But what Will describes is that you had this transformation in the way medicine worked, uh, surgeries that used to have uh, consequences that meant people needed to stay under care for days afterwards. We're now in day events. And so the number of hospital beds required for post-surgical collapsed around the Western California. But uniquely in Canada, uh, we reduced the beds, but we didn't close any of the hospitals. In fact, we kept opening more of them because politicians loved having a shovel in their hand for a photo and a scissor in their hands with a ribbon. Uh, and as a result, we had administrative costs and inefficiencies. And Harris closed 40 uneconomic hospitals and reallocated the money into the modern super regionals that we're blessed with now and a massive reinvestment in the uh, specialty corridor down University Avenue at the center of Toronto, which services all of the province. And the reinvestment process took a decade. 
And McGinty and Wynne got to cut the ribbons. But as Will Falk's chapter outlines, Harris's brave decision to reallocate the funds and close the hospitals, rip the bandage off, if you will, uh, helped save the Canadian healthcare system because it gave moral permission for every other premier of any party in any other province of Canada, gave them the permission to do the same necessary thing. Those kinds of changes are so brave and so lasting. And this chapter articulates how beneficial they have been uh, to the country. I think that that felt great to uh, learn that myself as part of the editorial uh, oversight of this project. What do you think were his failures? Speak, for instance, about the antagonism of the era. How much, if any, responsibility does, does he have for it? Outstanding question. And I've stewed a lot about that. The conflict between the public sector unions and government really came chronic in the Harris era. Uh, we downsized massively in the public service, last meaningful adjustment to be done like that. And when you close 40 hospitals, the nurses in those hospitals have to go find other jobs elsewhere. That kind of change management process, plus enforcing a new curriculum and standardized testing and measuring performance of teachers, all of this stuff caused tremendous stress in the education system. So how much of it should Mike own? The conflict with public sector unions became ugly uh, before Harris. In yes. fact, Bob Ray tried, in a very difficult time in Ontario, Premier Ray tried to introduce something called the social contract, which was an effort to save union jobs while simultaneously reducing government spending because there was no more debt financing available in the world because Ontario was a bad credit. And it split the union movement, divided the NDP party, uh, and ended up, I think, being the cause of Mr. Ray deciding he was no longer actually a socialist himself. So uh, when Harris got in, somehow the public sector unions had got to the point where they'd convinced themselves they were all the coal miners and their leadership was all Arthur Scargan. <laughs> uh, and it basically became permanent war. And that has an adverse impact and, and has kind of infected uh, policy since. If you think about this terrible COVID time, it was overwhelmingly evident that the kids needed to be back in the classroom. But there was totally legitimate concern from the unions about the health and safety of their union membership in those classrooms. It called for nothing less than Team Canada and getting everybody around the table and working out together how we were going to do this. And the teachers unions of Ontario just couldn't do that. And so uh, did Mike Harris cause this? No. Did Mike's time exacerbate it? Yes. Were the changes he did necessary to get us the balanced budgets he achieved and fund the tax cuts that he enabled, which allowed Ontario to outperform on job creation and economic growth, every other province in Canada, every state in the union, and every OECD nation for six years? The Harris agenda was effective. Should he permanently own that as being the primary cause? I don't think that's fair. But because he was the most successful against the unions, they have done the most they could to cancel his memory. David Frum's chapter sets out four lessons from the Harris record, including the importance of sound public finances, 
clear political communications, cross-identity political coalitions, which you alluded to interestingly earlier, and a happy warrior political style. What do you think the lessons are? I think there's uh, one motivating one and one more sobering one. The motivating one is that, and I think it's very relevant right now, Sean, the problems of Canada, some people say it's even broken. And in fact, the system is broken is the uh, final sentence of the first paragraph of the Common Sense Revolution platform. When people look at really difficult problems and they conclude they're intractable and that no one person can change things for the better, that's a very, very bad scenario for a democratic country. And so the good news, the lesson that you can draw from the Harris legacy is that it is entirely possible for a single person of courage, conviction, integrity, and work ethic to fundamentally improve uh, the jurisdiction uh, that they're accountable for and lead by example in a way that has favorable lessons and impacts on other jurisdictions nearby. Harris and Klein and Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien helped take Canada from a bad place and get it to a much better place. So the good lesson to be learned is just how powerfully effective a single person's leadership can be. A story of an effect of personal agency, that we aren't passive observers of forces beyond our control, that we have agency to shape our jurisdiction or country's direction. A hundred percent. And ideas and uh, commitment and willingness to take the consequences. Uh, it is possible to change Canada for the better. You can do it, Sean. You're right. That is a motivating lesson. So what's the sobering one? The big change uh, always will have major stakeholders uh, against who benefit from the status quo and are funded and convinced of their own agency. And so it is entirely possible that doing the right thing will not be fundamentally rewarded in the short term. So if you think about how beneficial the GST and free trade were to Canada, but Brian Mulroney's legacy is still in the process of rehabilitation. Uh, the changes that Mike implemented, uh, a lot of them got done in their final form long after he was gone. And other people take the credit. And so the decision to exit coal, as an example, as part of our energy uh, generation in Ontario, incredibly controversial controversial decision and really difficult to implement back then. So he decides on the course. The liberals criticized him relentlessly for doing it too slowly because we said it would be 2007 before it was possible. McGinty was partly elected saying, I will do it faster. And then closed the last plant in 2007 because that's how long it took. So sometimes doing the right thing doesn't get you the short-term political reward. In my view, that shouldn't stop you from doing the right thing. And reminding people of both the virtues and the costs of courageous leadership is, I think, a, you know, the two-part story of the Harris legacy. For me, a major underlying narrative is a challenge to the presumption that conservatives can only be successful if they moderate, by which I mean they close the distance between themselves and the liberals on most policy areas. 
Harris obviously rejected that assumption and he won twice and carried out the transformational agenda that we've been discussing. Is there a lesson there in your mind or is the Harris record too contingent to universalize? Well, I think it's really important to acknowledge that uh, every campaign uh, needs to have a strategy. Sometimes that strategy is policy, but it, it, always, it isn't always. Uh, and so uh, Premier Ford's second election victory in Ontario was a landslide. Uh, it's hard to think of a policy that was articulated in that campaign. Uh, there was just a theme uh, that resonated, articulated by someone uh, that the electorate had concluded was genuine and acting in good faith. Uh, and that was enough. Uh, so I think, you know, from a practical perspective, Harris also was very careful about his issues. There are issues that divide conservatives and there are issues that unify conservatives. Reagan used the same technique of focusing on the ones where there was unity and putting the other ones uh, behind. And so Harris was no social conservative. He had some social conservative bones in his body for sure, but he drove an economic change agenda and a structure of government change agenda. And the entire conservative movement was on the same page on those. Uh, and so is that the same situation today where, you know, this contest against ultra progressive uh, liberalism, uh, uh, which, you know, is got at its core kind of a self-hatred of uh, everything good about Western civilization uh, and whether that's the contest we're having to fight. Um, if that's the contest we have to fight, then it's going to be a difficult one to do uh, and have everybody a conservative on the same page. Because law and order conservatives and libertarian conservatives won't necessarily be aligned. So keeping a movement together, you need to pick the policies that are directly attached to what needs to be done. It will resonate with a majority of the electorate and keep the party united. And because our movement is so diverse, it's uh, always a higher degree of difficulty dive like in the Olympics. Uh, you know, where you're supposed to do two twirls and three somersaults and land without a splash. Uh, creating a conservative platform with consensus behind it is a higher degree of difficulty, but it is possible. And when you do it, it wins. I want to end with a question about Harris himself. You obviously know him well. Let me put a two-part question to you. First, what does he think about the book? And second, as you worked on it, what did you learn about him or his government? That surprised you the most? Uh, so uh, first question first, Mike knew about the book from the start. He saw it when it was finished. He read it all the way through and called me with a couple of comments and questions. But he's very happy that this book exists. And I'm, I'm glad he is. And he deserves to be. Hmm. Because what it says, and I think all of us would like to know this uh, in our advancing ages, you know, he did good. So I think that part is, is, makes me feel good too, honestly. From your second question, I think the most surprising thing, and it probably shouldn't have been, was how deep we went across so many policy areas. Totally. Uh, there was almost, you know, volume two could be written. We didn't get to what we did on law and order and crime and justice, as an example. And I'm kicking myself now that we don't have a chapter about it. I keep having folks send me notes saying, how come this is? Uh, and <laughs> this was a change government. 
uh, it really worked at that job. And it went deep and wide. And the scope and scale of that change still surprises me, uh, even though obviously at the very start, that's all we wanted to do. The fact that we really, really did it is still has the potential to surprise now. A good way to end what has been a, a terrific conversation. The book is The Harris Legacy, Reflections on a Transformational Premier. Alistair Campbell, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Absolute pleasure. I've been a subscriber since the start. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.